Well, today is week two of the book of Romans. And I'm convinced that as we go on this journey together, I'm, I'm totally convinced that people's lives are going to be utterly changed. I think when we look back down the road, we may get six months or six years down the road, there will be stories in this church people are going to look back and they're going to say, remember when we went through the book of Romans? That's when my life with God changed. There was a dramatic difference. Something new was light on fire. You say, well, how do, how do I have that confidence? How, how do you know that? And, how, and why do you believe that? I believe that because it's happened in the past. This great letter that we're going through, this great letter of good news, has been so instrumental in, in history of people's lives being dramatically changed. The greatest reformations and revivals that we know about are the results of the power of this great book or letter that we're going in. For example, in the summer of A.D. 386, a man by the name of Augustine, he was a native of North Africa, who had for two years been a professor of rhetoric at Milan, sat weeping in the garden of his friend Alpheus. As he sat in the garden discussing things of God, he's crying. He almost was persuaded to begin a new life in Jesus, Jesus, yet he found it impossible to break away with his old life. Like, how do I let go that I'm a professor of rhetoric? At the same time, you're telling me about Jesus how do I let go of this old way of living and embrace this new thing you're telling me about? As he sits there, historians tell us that there's a child in a neighborhood that could be heard singing just over the fence line. And the child was singing Tole Lege, Tole Lege, which is a little melody that says, Take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine hears that little song being sung, and he's thinking, maybe I need to take up and read it, struggling that perhaps there was something he was to do. And he looks down by his friend, Alpheus, and he sees a scroll there. And he picks up the scroll, and he starts to read some of the words that are on that scroll. And that scroll contained a portion of the book of Romans. And he read one line that said, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That one line, no further would I read, he said, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness and doubt vanished away. It's like, I need to take up the Lord Jesus and let him enter my life. In that very moment, that one sentence, the book of Romans, the church received a man by the name of Augustine, the framer of much of its theology. And if you're a historian, you know the name Augustine. You're like, that's how his life began? It started with the book of Romans. Dr. Barnhouse had a great thought on Romans. He's written four or five different volumes on the book of Romans trying to help people understand it and explain it. He said, a scientist may say that mother's milk is the most perfect food known to man, and a scientist may give you an analysis showing all the chemical components. He may give you a list of all the vitamins in the milk and an estimate of the calories in a given quantity. But a baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content and will grow day by day. So it is with the profoundest truths of the Word of God. Some of us may be able to analyze it. Some of us may not. But all of us will do well to drink of it and grow day by day. Have you picked up the book of Romans, the, the letter of Romans? Have you 
gotten your copy, whether it be in your Bible or have you picked up, like I suggested last week, one of these little Romans journals where you can have the book of Romans and you have some blank pages that you can journal right along with. You know, some of you will pick this up and you can read this and you can analyze it and you can break it down and you understand Greek, you understand Hebrew, and you look at me and I can get in a room with you and I get to stare at you like a deer with deer steering headlights going, I don't know what you're talking about. You've got, you got this thing broken way down more than I can possibly understand. Some of you are like that in this room. Some of you are somewhere in the middle. You're like, I get some of it, but there are a lot of questions about it. And some of you, right at the very beginning, you're like, this book of Romans, this whole thing is like foreign language to me. I pick it up and I don't get it. I promise you, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, if you pick it up and you use it little by little, you'll grow. I believe so strong in the Word of God because it's happened in my own life. It's only by the Word of God intersecting into my life, little by little, have I grown and have I changed, become who I am today. And so the book of Romans will do that in our life. This is a marvelous book. It's a remarkable letter. And I could go on and on and on talking about it, but it quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. It actually quotes it 57 times. The most common words in Romans are the word God. You want a good exercise, go through the book of Romans as you read it. Pick a color like a color pencil and just highlight the word God every time you see it. Maybe use red for the word God. It, it, the, the word law is in here 72 times. Get a blue letter or blue pencil and highlight every time you see the word law. And these different words, like the word Christ that's in here 65 times, or the word sins in here 48 times, the word Lord's in here 43 times, the word faith is 40 times. Pick a different color marker or pencil and every time you read through, highlight with similar color and you go through and you'll start picking up themes and ideas and teachings that Paul wants us to grasp. It's about God. It's about the law. It's about Christ, the Lord, and faith, and the ramifications of all those terms. What do they mean when they intersect into our lives? So I understand about God. I understand about sin. I start understanding about Christ. I understand about law. And when I start putting the puzzle pieces together, what happens is the greatest letter of good news because life change happens when we grab on to the concepts that the Apostle Paul teaches us. So let's begin. Last week, I told you we were starting, and I did a little trick on you and said, well, we're actually jumping over to Timothy, and we didn't actually open up the book of Romans. Today, we're going to open up the book of Romans, so open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. There's a great beginning. Here's what it says. Paul, all right, let me stop. That's where we start today. We're in it. I told you we're going to open the book of Romans. Let me finish that sentence. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. But I think we must stop with the word Paul. And some of you are like, Brian, are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. And we won't move this slow through the whole letter because we'd be here until Jesus returned. <laughs> but as I was studying and preparing over the last several months, I kept going, we don't need to dive in there deep. But God kept going, stop and talk about Paul because do we understand who Paul is? I mean, if you just said to me at some time in my life, hey, who's Paul? I would have said, well, Paul is the guy I grew up with. He lived two doors down. We played basketball together and football together. We ran around together. We skipped school together. We also did some other things we weren't supposed to do together, experience in life. And so that's Paul. And you'd be like, no, that's not Paul. Some of you, I said, who's Paul? You might, well, that guy was on television. Paul Manfred, is he some political dude or something? He was arrested or something? Yeah. Okay, that, that guy's been around. 
Some of us would have a confusing look about it. Some of us say, well, Paul, yeah, you reference him in the sermons a lot. He's written a bunch of this Bible, but I don't understand where he fits and how, how it all goes together. And so as I was preparing, I was like, we've got to get a good understanding of Paul. Now, here's the challenge. How do I take all that Paul is and all who he is and not spread out the book of Romans to years upon years? And so I want to try to condense Paul into one sermon. And so we may be here just a little while, but we made it through first service. Um, and I promise we will pick up pace, but we got to know who Paul is. we, we got to know who he is. How, how can we feel the heartbeat of this letter without understanding who wrote it? I mean, when someone has written you a letter, it, 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 I can remember my mom has shared about my dad going off to the army before they were married and he would pen her letters, and she said, I remember the Dear John letter when he said, Honey, this is over. We're not getting married. And she wrote back, Yes, we are. And, and they kept writing letters and kept writing letters. And, and, and that letter meant a lot because she knew Glenn Bolton. And so she understood who he was. And so every time I wrote the letter, that was an importance. And so if we understand Paul and he writes this letter, when we open it, it starts to open our eyes and go, oh my goodness, now this starts to make some sense. And so we understand his heartbeat. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time over the next several months diving into Romans. Well, let's understand who this letter comes from. It wasn't always his name, you know that? His name was Saul. He was a good Jewish boy named for a good Jewish king, King Saul, born in Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus, and Tarsus was known as a university town. Now, it was center of a Greek culture, Tarsus. Now, if you're like me, uh, not everyone's this way, but when it comes to geography, I kind of struggle. I'm like, okay, I know that's like somewhere over the eastern side of the country or world, you know. And so i got to pull up the maps and kind of look. And so this week I was like, well, where is this Tarsus at? Here's where Tarsus was located. Tarsus, right over here, this is the Mediterranean Sea. And so that would have been on south, which is now Turkey. But Tarsus is right over there, Damascus and Jerusalem and Antioch. And you're like, what are those towns? I've never heard of those before unless they're in the Bible. But we don't hear those towns now. But you can see right there, like Colossae, the book of Colossians, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Or you see Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And so right there is Tarsus. So this is where he was born. And they say, now where does that look at today? Go to the next screen right there. This is where it's at today. You see Turkey's right there. We're familiar now. Syria and Iraq and Jordan and Egypt and Italy and Greece. You're like, oh, now I understand where we're at. That's where the center of Christianity launched from. That's where the churches first planted and everything then spread from that region. This region right there in that area is, was a high educational area. A portion of his education was in Jerusalem under some of the most distinguished doctors of the law by a, by a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a grandson, perhaps, of the most famous rabbi who ever lived. His name was Hillel. He studied under this very distinguished doctor, so not only was he well-educated in matters of Greek culture and philosophy, but also of Jewish law. And so he understood the Old Testament, the Jewish law. It is said in those times that there were great universities in the Greek world. There were three of them, one in Athens, one in Alexandria, and one was in Tarsus. They were kind of the Harvard, the Yale, and the Princeton of the day. He was educated at Tarsus and then further educated in a Jewish school of Gamaliel. And keeping the tradition of the Jewish family, he learned a trade. And everybody at that time would learn a trade. We might be smart in our culture to follow an example. Learn a trade while you're also 
being educated. He grew up learning the trade of his father. He was taught how to work with hides. He was a leather worker, a tent maker. And history tells us that he was rather common occupation. That was a rather common occupation in Tarsus. He's educated up in the age of 13, learning the trade as in a younger man. And then he's packed off to Jerusalem with Gamaliel, who was called the beauty of the law. That was his nickname because he so personified the law, the mosaic and the traditional law of Israel. And so Gamaliel had this nickname known as a beauty and law. Very important that we understand that Paul was raised and grounded in the law, in living by the law, living by the Jewish law. His education under Gamaliel would have been extremely intense, memorizing and quoting back tons of scripture, not just a verse here and a verse there, but chapters and books, like you're going to memorize this stuff, interpreting it. Okay, now you got it memorized. Now what does this mean? And from age 13, he was this, in this interchange with Gamaliel, but not also Gamaliel. It would have been others who were part of the Jewish teaching because they would have been rubbing shoulders one to another. So he's in this highly educated situation learning at a very young age. Now, he never met Jesus in his earthly life. He probably completed his education, and then he returned back to Tarsus. Some historians believe he became probably a leader of the synagogue there in Tarsus because he had leadership capabilities, and no matter where he was, he always became the leader. didn't matter where he was, and it seems very obvious that that would have happened in Tarsus. So there he is in Tarsus, has this great Greek education, he has a tremendous Jewish education, He's got all the credentials to move around the Roman world because his father's a Roman citizen, and so that makes him one. And yet he has all the Jewishness and all the understanding. So as people know, by your education and by your papers you have, then you can travel further, and you're accepted from one town to another town. And he's marvelously prepared. He becomes zealous. He becomes extremely zealous, utterly zealous, utterly committed to the Judaism that was given him. And then Philippians 3 Five says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, why would that be listed? Because that's keeping with the Jewish law. I mean, he was stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of a Hebrew. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee. And you couldn't get more committed than that. He was extremely committed. He had zeal to the place where he began to persecute the church, though. It's like, I'm so committed to the law. If I hear anything that's not aligning with the law, then I'll stand up against it. Not only will I stand up against it, I'll persecute, I'll, persecute, I'll do everything I can to stop it, he was that first-class legalist. He kept the law to the T. Sometime, probably when he's in Tarsus, this thing with Jesus then happened. He begins to hear about Christians and this new sect or a new religion that is starting to bubble up. Like, what's going on? He's starting to hear that they were filling the city of Jerusalem and they were teaching about the Messiah that's going to come. He hears this and he thinks, heresy. This doesn't align with the law that I understand. And so he's like, i got to stop this. He's angry about it. That He's so angry that he wants to affront the traditional Judaism. Like He's like, I'm going to stand up and I'll stop anybody. So we find him in the city of Jerusalem early in the book of Acts. And a persecution breaks out and he's right in the middle of it. Turn your Bibles to, to the book of Acts. Because in order for us to understand Paul, <clears throat> we have to go a little bit church history and go to the book of Acts. Look at chapter 26 with me. We'll start at the back of Acts, and we'll go through the front to kind of catch up there. But just listen what he says to King Agrippa. He's underneath um, being trialed, underneath the trial, and here's his testimony that he speaks himself in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's like, I was given my approval. I'm saying this is okay. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he's standing up. Here's my testimony. I did everything I could to stop Christianity. I did everything I could to stop those who believed in Jesus. Now, you go back to Acts chapter 8. I just want to point out several things in, in Acts chapter 8. He's really angered. I mean, he is just ticked off that there's a new sect or a new group that is growing. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was consenting to the death of another man. Well, whose death was that? It was the death of Stephen. Stephen's the first martyr, someone who died for their faith. You go back to chapter 7, verse 58. It says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid him, laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. So Stephen, who was sharing the message of Jesus, taken out of the city and stoned, and then there's Saul standing. Some texts say he is there giving his approval. Kind of like, this is a good thing. I like it. And I was, that was typical stuff for him. Typical to be involved in the execution of Christians. The, Luke, the writer of Acts, literally says that he laid waste the church. Look at Acts 8, verse 1. At that time, there was a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Great persecution. Who's the head of that persecution? Saul. And Acts 8, 3, and Saul made havoc of the church. He entered into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. The result was they were scattered. He literally cleaned them out of Jerusalem by persecuting them. He had, organ, he had an organized approach. The word he made havoc, or some translations say laid waste, or, or ravaging the church is the Greek word describing a wild boar rampaging through a garden. What would happen to your garden if that happened? Destroyed. It would be gone. It's used to speak of an army that's devastating a city. The man was just as fanatical then as later on we becomes a Christ follower. And so he sold out the things he did. If he's going to stand for something, he stood 100%. And while he's in Jerusalem, getting everybody scattered, he says, look in verse, verse 9 of chapter 26, he says, I even persecuted the foreign cities. Like, I persecuted them so far, they took off to other lands. He got word that there's a big group of them in a city called Damascus. And in Acts 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing out these threats, murders against the disciples of the Lord. He's like this wild bull snorting out his fury and his anger. He's breathing out these threats. He's like, there's a group of them that are somewhere else. I'm going to go find them. And so in Acts 9, 2, he requests that he gets papers. It's kind of like affidavits. Like, can I get the affidavits? Can I get my okay so I can travel to another area? Letters go to Damascus Synagogue so that he could there go there, have permission then to arrest these men and women and to drag them back to Jerusalem or to persecute them. He isn't content with just cleaning Jerusalem. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to everybody. I have a vendetta. I want to I stop this in some way. He's consumed with capturing and executing Christians like a war horse with, a, with the smell of battle in his nostrils. He's breathing out the fury and looking for fields to conquer. He's like, I'm going after any of them, wherever I can find them. He's headed for Damascus. Now, Damascus was a pretty good town at that time, a city of about 150,000 people, give or take. It was about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. 
Now, back in the day when they traveled, it wasn't like us with a car. We say 160 miles, no big deal. I get in a car, drive 160 miles, do some business, go home the same day, and I've traveled 320 miles and I did my business. No, they got to get planned and they got to get ready. So he gets his entourage together. Knowing we're going to travel over some tough terrain, it's not going to be just a direct straight path. Some will go up, some will go down. We've got to be protected from animals or from bandits. We're going to have to have food and water. And so we're going to travel, and it's about a six-day travel to get there over that 160 miles. Because there's a large Jewish synagogue, and he's hearing rumors about Christianity spreading. But notice in verse 2, it's an interesting thing. In verse 2, chapter 9, he says that he's looking for those who are of the way or this way. That was a title for Christians back then. Those who were following the way, who were following that system of belief became the, became the title for Christians. It was like, I'm going to find them. If they're part of the way, if you could find any of them, he would want to bind them. He would want to arrest them. He would want to take them back. Or if they fought against them, he'd say, I'll just kill them. I'll, just, I'll be done with them. And then something amazing happens in Acts 9.3. And he journeyed. He came near Damascus. And suddenly... That word suddenly is like the life-changing word of history. And suddenly, with suddenly, the whole course of history dramatically changes. There's shown around him a light from heaven. Now, if you read Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, where he recites his testimony, this is taking place at noon in a land where the sun is already super bright and super hot, would not have sunglasses, so bright it'd be hard to see, probably in the, at noontime, they're making sure they're having some kind of hat or something to shade their eyes or walking along shading their eyes. And it says, and suddenly a light that is basically brighter than the sun stops him in his tracks and suddenly at noontime, the middle of the day, and here's what happens. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice in him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't know exactly the, the, the voice in that. It could have been, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or it could have been, Saul, Saul. Now I got your attention. Why are you persecuting me? could have been approached in many different ways. No one really knows exactly how it was said. Some people need a dramatic thing to happen and get their attention. Some of us continue on the same path that we keep going until something dramatic happens. The heart attack happens. Cancer takes place. Mom passes away. Something crazy dramatic. The car accident that left me paralyzed. Something dramatic gets our attention. That was going on. Now imagine the absolute panic in his life when in verses 5 and 6, he says, Who are you, Lord? Who, like, what's that voice? And he knows, though, it's the Lord, but he also has that question. It's like, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And so right on his tracks on the way to Damascus, in order to persecute more Christian, God stops in the middle of that, blinds him. He's like, who are you, Lord? He says, you, now you're blind. Now you, for the next three days, you're going to go live this way. Could you imagine the fear? Could you imagine the moment if you could put yourself in that situation and go, wait a minute, I'm persecuting people. I've got my own track. I've got my own passage. I know what I'm doing. And now I'm stopped in my tracks. If you went home today and you walked in your house and you heard an audible voice that said, Brian or Samantha or whatever your name is, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm in the house by myself. There's nobody else around here. You would be freaked out. You'd be like, why did I just hear that voice? Even if you're living a good life. 
Even if you're like, man, I'm holy, I'm good, all's, all's well. We'd still be like, why am I hearing somebody else's voice going, is the TV on? What is that? We'd be freaking out. Imagine what he's going through. I mean, he's been killing Christians everywhere. He's been arresting them everywhere. And now he's facing the one who he's been persecuting. The one who he's been standing against says, time's, time's up. Time for us to deal with some things. Time for us to have some business. Do you think he's panicked? Maybe you walked in that in your life. Maybe you've hit that moment in life. You're like, yeah, I kind of went my own way for a long time until God really got my attention. See, there's no way to understand the horrifying reality of hearing, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. What are you doing? He's confronted straight up by Jesus who went about doing good. Jesus who went about healing. Jesus who took out demons and delivered people from death. Jesus whom Stephen had called upon in his own death. Jesus whom he had hated. Jesus who, whose followers had mercilessly, he had killed them. Jesus was alive and all the bloodshed down in Saul and a sea of sorrow was shattered. For the next three days, he's penitent. He's broken. He's devastated. He's destroyed because he knows my sin is enormous. And now I've got to deal with it. And him and God, I think, are dealing with some business. His total life was wrapped up in the annihilation of the church. I'm going to get rid of it. Had his plan succeeded, the church would have been destroyed or smothered or stuffed out. Had he succeeded, there's a great chance we wouldn't be here today having the same hope that we put our hope in Jesus had he succeeded. It would have been drowned out in his blood. And, and you know, he never forgot the enormity of his sin. He never forgot what he did. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you look, at, uh, look back on all the Christians whose lives have been taken, there's just a, a, a shuddering in his heart. And in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord <clears throat> was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. What's the word there? I'm the worst. In other words, he's like, I'm not forgetting. This trustworthy saying, he says, of, of sinners, I am the worst. It means I never forgot. I never forgot, God, that I, I stand against your way. And he's telling Timothy, I'm not forgetting where I came from. On that road, he was marvelously transformed. He was blind. He was speechless. He was utterly devastated. Verse 9 says he was three days without sight. He didn't eat and he didn't drink. The only thing I can assume that happened during that time was God was dealing with him. God was dealing with him. He committed his life to Christ and there wasn't any human Christian who could deal with him. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, because if they got in his face or they came to him, what would happen? Persecution. So could you imagine you hear about Saul being in your region? Like, hey, there he is. Who's going to be the bold missionary? You say, well, I'll go convert Saul. I'll go talk to him. And Saul says, oh, yeah, you're dead. Oh, yeah, you're arrested. Oh, yeah, you're being stoned. So people are like, I'm not running out to him. There's no way. The only person who could have converted him would have been God. Because even the apostles, the apostles were afraid to let him in. We'll see that in a moment. Nobody could get to him. God had to do it. Check this out. Uh, this is what's cool. Th this tells me a lot about Paul's personality. Th this, this is him. There's no, this says everything about him. Acts, Acts chapter 9 says, and immediately he preached Christ. Now, this is after the three days, being blind, not eaten, 
And he goes, immediately. He didn't say, well, no, I don't know enough. Oh, I got to go check my mom and my dad. I'm not sure if I have enough money to travel. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm well-educated. No, when he came to Christ, it was immediate. I, I'm changing my way, and I have a mission. What am I going to do? I'm going to preach Christ. He did, uh, he did everything that way. He was so utterly committed, totally committed to whatever it was. As soon as he was transformed, wholeheartedly commitment, preaching Christ in the synagogue, and he was preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. So what he saw as heresy... Now he believes as the light of life. So he begins to do the work of evangelizing in Damascus. He's on the way to Damascus to persecute and arrest, and he's changed, and now he's teaching and preaching. Verse 21, Acts chapter 9, All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them to prisoners to the chief priests? You think some people are scratching their head? Now wait a minute. He's been killing people and arresting people. Now what's he doing? He must be crazy. Did he lose his mind? What, what's taking place in his life? What's going on here? This guy has changed boats midstream, so to speak. He just totally changed the plan. Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is a Messiah. You wonder, where did he get that information from? How did that happen? Divine inspiration. What happened in those three days? God gave it to him. It didn't take long. It didn't take very long, and then they were after him. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. He's going there to get the Christians, and now the Jews are like, wait a minute, we're coming after you, Paul, because what you're saying, you're out of your head. You know what they did to him? Got him out of town. Paul, you got to get out of town. you got, you got to leave. The next text tells us that he spent some years in Arabia. And if you read Galatians 1, I don't have time to get into Galatians 1. It tells you that when he went to Arabia, it's probably likely he spent nearly three years there. He spent nearly three years there. And what was going on in those three years? He was getting a seminary training. But his seminary training didn't come from books. His seminary training didn't come from men. His seminary training came from the Lord. I think he's given direct revelation from God. Galatians 1, verse 11 says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. So this time, he didn't go sit underneath a Gamaliel. He didn't sit underneath scholars. He sat underneath the Lord and said, Lord, you got my attention. What do you want me to do? And Lord started downloading to him. Here's what you need to know. Here's your mission. Here's where you're going. Here's what your future looks like. That's what qualified him to be an apostle. First, he had seen the resurrected Lord. And second, he was given a word of God personally from the Lord himself. And so now he's called an apostle. After those years, you know what he did? He decided to go back to Damascus and preach some more. I mean, stop and think about that. Who would do that? The last time I was there, just a few years ago, they chased me out of town. They were going to take my life, and now I'm going to go back to them. You know what happens? They want to take his life again. 2 Corinthians tells us that the other Christians in the area had to help him get out of town. They loaded him down in a basket over the wall so he would finally would get out of town and, and rescue him so they wouldn't take his life. And then he goes off to Jerusalem, and he gets to Jerusalem. He tries to join the other apostles. Look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Now, this is a few years later, all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. They're thinking, this is a scheme. It's a trick. Wait a minute. He's coming in. Hey, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You're all my buddies. And they're thinking, you're not my buddy because if you get in our circle, you're going to kill us. 
They weren't really sure. But Barnabas took him in. And he brings them to the apostles, declared unto, unto them how he had seen the Lord and how he had spoken of the Lord and how he had preached boldly in Damascus the name of Jesus and that he was coming, that he was coming in and going out of Jerusalem. And Barnabas then becomes an escort, basically to say, listen, we can trust him. We can trust him. His life's really been changed. He's one of us. He's a believer now. We've all been there before. You know somebody who claims, well, I'm a believer in Jesus now. And we're like, What? Well, that, that couldn't have happened. How, is that real? There's no way that's real. Did that really take place? Except for we may not know someone who persecutes, but we wondered, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, a friend who, who, was, who was of this world, and you're like, are they really? Is that, is that for real? So Barnabas escorts him, and, and what did he do in verse 29? He talked and he debated with Hellenistic Jews. But what did they do? Try to kill him. So he's like, now I'm going to go to the Hellenistic Jews, people who I, I know their language. I've been trained. I know, I know everything they're thinking. And he goes, I can debate you now. I can show you who Jesus is. I can show you the Messiah. And they're like, I'm gonna, we're going to come after you. We're, we're going to take your life. He's quite a guy, isn't he? I mean, it's quite remarkable when you start to just try to understand his life. And I'm trying to summarize his life down in a 30, 40-minute sermon right now. But if you take the time and dive in, you start to understand who Paul is. And now we have the letters from Paul given to us, and not only just the book of Romans, but nearly half of the New Testament. It's quite amazing. He can't stop staying out of trouble. It's just the way he is. He's like, if I believe in something, I'm going after it. And finally, the brethren send him away because they had all they could handle and bringing problems on them. And so he goes back to Tarsus. And from Galatians 1, I think we conclude that he spent about probably 15 days, give or take, with Peter and the apostles. Sometimes it's hard to put all the puzzle pieces together when you start going, okay, we're in Romans, we're in Acts, now we're in the, these other books. How does this all fit in trying to get Paul's life? But according to Acts 15.41, most likely in Tarsus, he founded a church and probably founded several churches. He's always finding churches as he's going about evangelizing, telling people about Jesus. But in Acts 15, 41, it says he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches, which if he went to confirm them, then that means they had been founded. And so he's coming to confirm, like, yes, you're all believers in Jesus, and yes, you're a Christ-following group. And, and then he brings words of encouragement and also words of instruction and teaching. But here, his ministry explodes and really takes off. Now, if you want to stick around for the afternoon, we'll walk through Acts chapters 11 through 21. I don't know if I have the energy to do that, and you probably don't have the time, time to listen. But this week, read Acts chapter 11, verses through Acts 21. You're going to get three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as he went about preaching and teaching and establishing the church and planting churches. This week, we, need to get a, we just need to get a glimpse of his conversion. It's so important. Your growth guide this week guides you to some other texts just to open up and read and get a gr glimpse of who is this Paul, this Saul guy that we're learning from. Very important to use your growth guide. Next week, we're going to get into the why. But I, I just want to kind of wrap up today with asking the question, what made Paul so great? Why, why did God choose this Saul confront his life, and change his name to Paul. I looked up a second century description of Paul written by some presbyter, and this was the description that was written. Small of stature, and there's an unconfirmed report that he was three cubits, which would be four, four feet six. Bald, with crooked legs, a hooked nose, scars all over his face from his stonings and beatings. And the writer said, full of friendliness. Now, I don't know. I think you have to be full of friendliness because if you looked at a guy like that, you'd probably be scared. You're going, you're looking pretty rough. 
if you study the New Testament account, it's very likely that he also had a difficult oozing eye disease that made him less than pleasant to behold. He had some kind of disease. And so like you look at the guy, you're like, kind of repulsive. In other words, he's not your typical charismatic leader. He wasn't running around with a beautiful suit and a red tie going, man, look at me, now follow me, now go where I'm going. He didn't have, you know, these really high-dollar shoes and driving a really nice car and producing all kinds of stuff. That he goes, man, look at all my stuff. You can have all my stuff. If you do what I do, you can get what I got. He wasn't doing that. He's a rough-looking dude. So what made him great? What made him useful for God's kingdom? To, for, for God to say, you know what, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to use you tremendously. I think there's three things at least that I want you to grab on today. All of us can do these three things. And when we do them, I believe, then God says, I'm going to use you right here in the year 2020. I'm going to use you in a dramatic way. First of all, he had a biblical mind. The man was absolutely saturated in the Word of God. He knew this thing inside and out. He was deeply knowledgeable in the Old Testament, and it comes true. He knew this Word of God. And my concern is what's happening in our culture today is we don't know this Word of God. And because we don't know this Word of God, we see more and more sin just running rampant and the things that are not of God running rampant. And that's why when you turn on a television or you go to your social media feed, there should be all kinds of things that are just setting off the bells in your head going, wow, that's awful. Wow, that's not a God. Wow, that goes against Scripture. But unfortunately, too many of us Christians just look like the world because we don't know the Word of God. Prime example of that, <clears throat> Super Bowl halftime show. Now, I typically don't do this. I typically behave. Every now and then I'll tell my wife, I'm, gonna, I'm saying something about that post on social media. And she'll say, Brian, don't, don't you write anything. No, I'm, I'm saying something. That was just like totally stupid. I'm speaking up against it. She's like, no, you're not. Just don't say anything. I didn't tell her I was getting into one. <laughs> and um, someone posted the Monday or Sunday night after the Super Bowl halftime. And I don't care what you think about it. It was not of God. I don't care what your opinion is because it does not align with Scripture. And someone put on there and they said, oh, man, that was a dang great halftime show. And I replied and said, that was a dang awful halftime show because I'm measuring against the Word of God. And the person wrote back and, well, that's what you believe. You can believe what you want. But this is a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, not in this church. If they were in this church, I would handle it differently. <clears throat> in a kind way, over a cup of coffee, and then I just kept poking the bear on that discussion, and it went on for quite a while. Um, and I could tell the person was getting very mad, and I was wrong somewhat because I kept poking the bear. But, but what was really obvious to me was when we live in a culture that we can watch strippers on a strip pole at a halftime show, and we say, that's okay, and I'm a Christian, we've lost our way, church. And the reason why we've lost our way is because we don't know the Word of God. But if we can watch something like that and say that's okay, if we sat there and we didn't turn it off or we didn't pause it, so in our house we said, whoa, this is going the wrong way, pause. Let's wait a little while here and this is going to pass. We'll fast forward past it. And you can see enough clips. You see a few pictures. You know from the pictures. If you looked at that and you thought, man, that's just good stuff. This is missing in your life. We don't know the Word of God. And our culture is where it is today because... We've lost our way. Paul was used because he had a biblical mind. He had a biblical mind, a biblical filter that everything he did in his life, he was like, what, is, what does God's word say? You say, well, how do you know that? Well, just look at chapter 10 of Romans. Verse 11, he says, the scripture says. Verse 15, he says, as it is written. Verse 17, he says, faith comes by hearing 
when he's talking about a speech about Christ. Verse 20, he says, Isaiah is very bold and says, in verse 21, he says, very, very free with this. And then verse, chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 11, you know what the scripture says. Verse 8, according as it is written. And it goes on like that. In verse 26 of chapter 11, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer. In chapter 12, verse 19, as is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it goes on in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 11, for it is written. And Paul's letter all throughout, he's like, for it is written, the Lord says, the Lord does, the Lord says. He's continually referring to, what does the scripture say? And that's what he kept going back to. He had a biblical mind. He's focused on the word of God. We can't have a biblical mind unless we're in the word of God. You can't just osmosis. I've got it. It's not going to happen. You have to open it. That's why I'm encouraging you to get one of these little scripture journals where you can open it and you can read it and you can underline it and you can start to think with it. And little by little, just as a baby will grow on the milk, you'll start to grow and your mind will be shaped to have a biblical, God-centered mind. I think Acts 15.4 is kind of the climax when Paul says, whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. He says, the stuff that's written in the Word of God, that's for you. So your patience, your comfort, your hope grow. Everything was based on Scripture's biblical mind. He also had a resolute will. In other words, he wasn't giving up. Nothing was going to knock him off his purpose. He was going to stay committed to the purpose. You could throw him in prison. It wouldn't phase him. He just started an evangelistic meeting in prison, and people came to Jesus. He's like, okay, put me in prison. I'll just keep preaching and keep teaching and keep letting people know. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll correct it later. <laughs> um, he, had a, he had a biblical mind. You, you could stone him. You could put him in the book of Acts. Uh, you look at the book of Acts and you see that he's stoned and, he, and he's thrown on a dump uh, outside and, he, and God brings him back to life and, and raises him up and he says, look it, I'm going to do what? I'm going to go back and... And preach again. He'd be preaching in the middle of the night, and a guy fell out of the window. As he's listening to the sermon, a guy falls out of the window, and a guy dies. And Paul goes over and prays over him, raises him to death, and he's like, okay, now you sit down, i got to continue preaching. I mean, he wasn't going to be stopped by life situations. He was always, always a foundation builder, 15 years or so, laboring, planting seeds, working and working and working so faithfully. He said, they'll keep telling me in every city. Acts 20, 23, that bonds and afflictions await me, but none of these things move me. I mean, they kept telling him, Paul, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. Hey, they're waiting for you. They're going to attack you. They're going to kill you. They're going to arrest you. And he's like, why do I care about that? I have to finish my course with joy in the ministry which received the Lord. And he said, I'm going to keep testifying to the gospel, and I'm going to keep preaching the grace of God. And I don't care about all these threats. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like, I cannot stop. And, and you could try to stop him, but he wasn't going to stop. So he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I was in labors far greater, in prisons more often, in scourgings above measure, and exposure to death of the Jews five times. I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I, I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I had been the deep in journeys often. And this perils of rivers, perils of robbers, perils of mine own countrymen, perils from the Gentiles, perils in a city, perils in a wilderness, perils at sea, perils among the false brothers, in labor, toil, watching hunger, thirsting, fasting, cold, nakedness. And besides all this, 
he's actually got to take care of the church. In other words, he knew how hard it was just to care for God's people. He said, I've been through all this junk of life, and I have the church to care for. And he experienced all this before he wrote the letter of Romans. But he never deviated from his conviction. He said to Timothy, as he knew time was drawing near and he's training up Timothy to kind of take the baton, he says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. In other words, he's like, I'm going to give you this, but you can't quit. You need to press on. You need to have that resolute mind. What resolute determination. What a man, active and animated and determined and dynamic. Like, I am carrying the greatest job on earth. He wasn't going to quit. But in the midst of all that, he's known as being gentle and humble and meek. And it's just incredible. Not only was he a biblical mind and had a determined will, but he had a loving heart. I think this is why it didn't matter what he looked like. I think the love of his heart, because he'd come to know the love of God so well, just oozed out of him. He had a great sense of God's love. When he writes in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. In Romans 8, he says, what shall separate us from the love of God? So he grasped the love of God. What man would not grasp the love of God? He knows I'm a persecutor of Christians, and God could have took me out of this earth. But he redeemed me and gave me grace. Man, he experienced the love of God. He also had a great love for God. In Romans 15, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit. And he says, in first, it says to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains me. He understood God's love, and he, and he in turn wanted to give away God's love. He also had a great love for Israel. Chapter 9, he says his love for Israel was so profound that he could almost wish himself accursed from Christ if, I could, if it could mean salvation from his brother. I mean, he loved Israel that much. Oh, what love. It just oozed out of him. He had a love for the church. If you've read through Romans, I've asked you to do, and if you spend time reading it, you get to chapter 16. I know the first few times I got through 16, because I, I listened to on my device, I want to fast forward through it, or, or okay, well, I don't need to hear all that, because they're going to go through all this list of names, that he starts saying, thank you for this person, thank you for that person, hey, they did this, they did that, and you're like, why am I listening to this? And then I started diving in and going, God, if you've written this in here, there's a reason why you've put it down in here. And the reason why I think it is, is because he loved the dear people who ministered to him and ministered alongside of him. He was so thankful for the people who, who got it. He was so thankful for the people who were carrying the mission. And so he had this great love of the church. He had a great desire to, to see others love too. That's why in chapter 13, he says that the one commandment God wants you to keep is to love one another. Be filled with love. Love one another. You show me a woman or a man with a biblical mind and a determined will to obey God's, wor God's word and God's plan at all costs, and, and a person filled with love. And I'll show you a person who turned the world upside down. Do you know we can be just like Paul? We can have a biblical mind. It's possible. Turn off television. Turn off social media. Start reading the Bible again. Start studying God's word, and your mind will start to change. Yeah, it takes discipline. We live in a culture right now, there's all kinds of stuff just being thrown at us. You know, if you're driving your car 10, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, turn off the radio. Turn off talk radio. Turn off sports radio. Turn off K-Love. Turn off Air One, whatever it is. Turn it off and turn on the Word of God and just let it fill your car. Let it start filling your mind. It'll start shaping. You can have a biblical mind. You can have a determined will. Your will gets determined the more you know the Word of God. It all starts with Scripture. You say, well, I want to have a determined will. If you don't fill your mind with Scripture, you'll never have a determined will to live for Christ. 
I want to honor Christ in my life. I want to be right with him. I want to walk with him. I want to make sure I'm living for him. I want to make sure I'm doing my best and my part and know my purpose and do that. Well, get in the word of God. I want to love people like Paul loved people. But boy, I struggle with that because people drive me crazy. They make me mad and I get angry and I can't believe people say this and do that. You know where that starts to change? In the word of God. Because you have a biblical mind, then you get determined. And then as you have a biblical mind, your word of God, and you start reading about the love of Christ, understand the love of Christ, and you start seeing how it does. You, you, start, you start getting filled with that. It starts oozing out of you that you love and care for people. It's very possible. What does all this say to you? What does all this say to me? Well, let Paul speak for one last moment here this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul sells the church at Corinth. You follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Ooh, that's pretty bold, isn't it? He's like, listen, I'm walking so close to Christ. I'm following his example. You can look at me and you can follow me because I'm not going to lead you astray. If I stood up here and told you all, now you all follow Brian Bolton as I follow Christ. Some of you would want to hang me. You'd be like, Brian's a heretic. He's lost, his, he's lost his marbles. But should we not be able to say that to one another? We should be able to say, listen, I'm pursuing Christ with all I got. I'm chasing after Christ with all I got. You go ahead and you follow me. But that's what Paul was doing. He said, he's church Corinth. You can follow me. My heart is set on Christ. My mind is set on Christ. My, I have a biblical mind. He turns in, in Corinthians 4.16. He says, I urge you to imitate me. In other words, you do what I do. You do what I do. The old adage of, uh, of telling people or telling a child you're raising them, you know, or, or telling a friend, Listen, uh, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work. Paul's saying, you do as I say and you do as I do. Because my heart and my mind is set on Christ. Philippians 3, he tells the church in Philippi, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So he says, you follow me, but he's also saying, keep your eyes on those around you who are following Jesus, and you do the same thing. What's he saying? He's saying, be like me. Be like me. Have a biblical mind. Be like me. Have a determined will. Be like me. Have a loving heart. As we go through the book of Romans, that's what we're going to learn. How can we do this? How can we be like Christ? By looking at Paul as he's written this letter to us. We get a chance to peek into his life, and he's going to draw us to Christ. So what? So we can be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your heads.